You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. As we sit here right now at the 9-Foot Homemade Oak Bar and look at the standings, the White Sox are 11 games under, 6 back in their terrible division. They've won 4 of their last 10. They've won the last 2 games. They have a negative 60 run differential. They're 500 at home, and against teams with winning records, they're 20-33. and 33. This team doesn't have 15-5. and five in their system. I don't think they're capable of doing it. And that's what they really need to do to get back into it, my friend. On the other hand, when you go to the ballpark, it's a good time. I'm looking forward to a couple games I've got here coming up. I've enjoyed the ones that I've gone to to this point. If you get over the fact that this is a disappointing season and take the games at face value, that's basically what it is this summer, right? It's getting the cork and carry before the game, getting there after the game, you know, getting a, a good meal, feeding the kids ahead of time, trying something out at the bar, having a craft beer. They're at 33rd and Princeton in the shadow of the ballpark, and uh, you can learn more about them at corkandcarry.com. But, I mean, like, that's what it is. It's games in a microcosm. It's watching Luis Robert Jr. play really well, and he should be on the All-Star game. It's enjoying the players that are putting the hustle in, and it's trying to block out some of the ridiculous noise that the organization puts out to kind of cover for their mistakes. I think we've talked about that more than a few times, where the context becomes key with this season. And in the context of this was the year that they were going to turn the corner and go to the World Series, yes, it's horrible, it's ridiculous, we hate it. In the context of there are some good players on this team that are kind of fun to watch, and there's a good time to be had at the ballpark at any time, even when the team's terrible. You can still go out and have a fun time watching a baseball game. But then, yes, it does get sullied. It it does get hard to maintain any kind of positivity when you have chatter coming out of the front office. When you have, uh, and I didn't hear the thing, I just saw the Twitter response from Lucas Giolito's dad, Rick Giolito. When you have somebody from White Sox State Media over at NBC Sports Chicago on 670 to score, and then Rick Giolito's in the comments underneath it saying, quote, right here, he had a reaction to that to that, uh, that radio interview where he said, Lucas has never spoken to me or about him or any other veterans wanting to get out. Quite the opposite. In fact, he tells me, is how much he loves his teammates and coaches and how much he wants to win with them, as well as how much he loves the city and his life there. Like, there is this thing coming out, basically, to prepare you for the end of Lucas Giolito on the south side because they're likely going to trade him at the deadline because they're not going to pay him what he's worth, especially after having a really good season this year. But my question then becomes, if this team would have had a normal 2020. Let's say the pandemic never happens, right? If this team gets a 2021 where they go into the playoffs and don't get spanked by the Astros but go deeper, if this team in 2022 comes off of the disappointment with the Astros but then still turns around and goes deeper into the playoffs and possibly plays in the World Series or wins the pennant or goes wherever they go, but there's positivity walking in. And if this team had had success it seems to me like there still was never a plan for what they were going to do with their pitchers if they performed well because they're never going to pay them 
what the market value is of him. I feel like Lucas Giolito would be out the door at the end of this year, no matter what they would have done over the last couple of years. And they don't seem to have a plan. So while they're sitting there and they're trying to make it seem like, well, this is a foregone conclusion. My question is, why is it a foregone conclusion? Well, that's why you were supposed to talk to Rick Hahn after the parade. So he had time to think about what the plan was going to be because he didn't have anyone going in. But that gets back to the, you know, if you want to build anger amongst White Sox fans, let's talk about the quote unquote rebuild, which was not a rebuild because you didn't rebuild anything. You tore everything down and then you stacked all the ashes up and went, look at the house. And it wasn't there. (laughs) There was, there's no sustainability with this organization because you look at the minor leagues and you look at the lack of talent and you look at things there and, and, and you have this, you have this problem of sitting there saying, okay, we have a pitcher that we value greatly because he's basically the number one, number two pitcher on the, our staff and we're not going to be able to afford him. So we're going to turn around and we're going to give him you know, a a sign that says, thank you for your service. And we're going to walk you out the door now and and send you off to somebody else because we can't afford you because we assume we're not going to be able to resign you in free agency because, you know, all the reasons that they're going to give, but the reality is is that they don't have his replacement ready made. And we've talked about that. They don't have two or three guys that are fighting to come up here and take over a rotation spot to where you look at it and you go, okay, they can withstand the loss of Lance Lynn. They can withstand the loss of Lucas Giolito because we have three guys named Chuck Smith coming up, and I have to use a generic name like that because we don't actually have the guys coming up to actually right. take these guys' there's places. No, there's nothing down there that makes you feel like, okay, if their plan was always get pitchers young, use them as best as you possibly can, let them flourish, but at some point we're just not the team that can afford to keep these guys then you would have thought over the last couple of years there would have been pitchers developed behind Lucas Giolito where you wouldn't be that worried about what happens if you end up trading him at the trade deadline and moving on from him. But my point is, like, you didn't seem to have a long-term plan here. No. And so if they would have been winning this whole time, if this horrible season wasn't going on, if if they're, if they're four or five games up over 500, which would put them in first place right now, and they're chugging along, all they'd be doing is they wouldn't be talking about trading him, of course. They'd be like, no, 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 we're going to playoffs. We're making another run. But the offseason, the offseason is when you would have found when he out. he walks away. That, yeah, that you weren't going to end up keeping him, right? And so that just shows like a real lack of forethought here. All that we're seeing here is that the plan has always been that when these guys get to the point where they really get paid, we're not going to pay them. If what I'm hearing, if this narrative that, you know, the, you know, the, these guys, we're, we're going to have to move them at the trade deadline. You know, they, you know they, we're not, we're not going to be able to bring them back. I mean, it was coming out from the organization early in the season. We're probably not going to be able to bring this guy back. You hear all these different people reporting it. I mean, it, it boggles my mind because they didn't, if, if that was the plan, what did they do to prepare for this? And, and again, it slaps right in the face of everything that they told us over the last couple of years when they were telling us to be patient and we're talking about sustainability and being competitive each and every year and everything else like that. You're not that if your plan was when you get to the end of some of these contracts, these guys are just gone or you have to deal them at the trade deadline if you're not competitive. Doesn't make any sense to me. Online with me right now, James Fox from Future Sox. How are you, buddy? I am good, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We were just talking before you jumped on here about the uh, the atmosphere at the ballpark is actually pretty good for a team that's under 500. And it's a shame because... I love summer baseball. I've got several games lined up here in the next month. I'm going out there to see them, but it just feels like they're never gonna they're never gonna get back over 500. They they're probably gonna play 500 the rest of the way, and maybe even a game or two above it. But that isn't gonna be enough. Yeah, no, I feel the same. I mean, I went out Friday 
Red Sox are in town. You know, those big, like, blue blood matchups, like, are always kind of cool. I feel like there was a lot of Red Sox fans there. Uh, it was very hot. There were a lot of people tailgating. Like, the atmosphere was, was great. It's just, you know, you sit down to watch this, like, underwhelming baseball team, and, like, you just, like, imagine how much better it could be, right? Because it, it wasn't a huge crowd. I think it was 27,000, but, I mean, like, 27,000 for this bad team's pretty good. Think about like if they were in first, maybe that's 35,000 on a Friday night and it's even better. So yeah, I, I just, you know, I really like going. I've always really liked going. I just don't really like watching this baseball team. You know, we were talking a little bit about Lucas Giolito here. And the thing that really strikes me as crazy is the fact that it seemed at the beginning of the year, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. He's going to go to free agency after this year's over and they're probably not going to sign him or be able to get to the money, which perplexes me, one, because I thought we were going to do this long term. I mean, imagine if they would have won over the last couple of years and performed better over the last couple of years. He was still walking out the door. That's strange to me. And two, what do they have to replace a Lucas Giolito? What are you doing if tomorrow, suddenly, somehow, James Fox is put in charge of what they're going to do at the trade deadline? Yeah, so I mean, I think, look, we have... 13 more games until the MLB draft. And then I think you have all of July after that, obviously. I mean, look, I think, I think they're going to be enough out of it where like the best case scenario is to sell. Quite frankly, I've said that on multiple platforms and my own, you know, I think a guy like Lucas Giolito, it's a pretty easy decision for me. Now, if I were in charge, I kind of want to know just kind of like what kind of contract he's looking for, because like I wouldn't be opposed to signing Lucas Giolito. It just seems like, that's not happening. So once that's not happening, I mean, you need the value of a second-round comp pick, essentially. Like, if Lucas Giolito leaves as a free agent after you give a qualifying offer, you know, you're going to get a pick in the 70s next year for him, which, look, isn't value-less. I mean, that's it's not bad. Like, you add another, you know, million or so to your draft pool and get an extra pick. But, I mean, you should be able to get a lot more than that at this year's deadline. So, you know, I guess, like, the way things are trending, Lucas Giolito – Joe Kelly, probably definitely gone. And then I think like Kendall Graveman will have value with one year left on his deal. Um, A guy like Keenan Middleton is a free agent at the end of the year. And then, you know, like Lance Lynn maybe works his way back to the point where like you get something and dump the money. Right. And then you're, I don't, I don't know if anybody's going to want Yasmani Grandal or Ronaldo Lopez, but those guys are kind of in the same boat. So, you know, I would think your one year guys, I, I look, I would assume that they sell at this point just because, like you said, I mean, it's a 500 team that I don't think is capable of going on a 17 and three run in 20 games. And honestly, that's what it's going to take to get really back into this thing. And I just, you know, I just don't see it at this point. They dug themselves too big of a hole early. We're talking with our good friend, James Fox of Future Sox. We're going to get into the draft, what's going on in the system. Those of you listening, remember, you can switch to a new age of life for you or for mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. Keep them out of assisted living. Make it so they can get around their own home and live independently. Stair lifts, ramps, grab bars, lift chairs, even bathroom remodeling. Hyatt Home Medical Equipment works with your insurance. They have 0% financing for qualified individuals. And if you mention socks in the basement, you get an additional discount. If you're one of those people that uses a CPAP machine, if you're unhappy with your vendor, they will directly mail you supplies. Plus, you can go into the showroom and test it out in advance. They also have the latest in continuous glucose monitors. That and much more available at hhme.com for you to check out and then stop in and see them at 3518 West 95th Street 
in Evergreen Park. So if they move on from Giolito, which seems to be what all the smoke signals say, who's down in the minor leagues? What do they have pitching-wise? They don't seem to have anything that I'm aware of that's coming up, but you cover the minors for future sacks. Maybe you know more than me. Like, what's their plan? Is it going out in a free agency and trying to replace pitchers in this staff, or do they have somebody who they think is a starting pitcher in 2024? Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing it would be at least one pretty decent-sized free agent, which begs the question, then why, like, don't you just sign Lucas Giolito instead? And then, look, maybe they get a guy back in one of these trades that they can use. But, yeah, I mean, it's pretty barren at the upper levels. I think they've done a good job, like, lately of replenishing. I really like their draft strategy last year. Like, a guy like Noah Schultz is down in Kannapolis. He looks like a, you know, he should be a top 100 prospect really soon. One of the, you know, one of the best left-handed starters prospects, like, in the minors. But he's so far away, right? And then even, like, a Peyton Paulette and a Jonathan Cannon, who you took, this year are guys that should move quickly, but not next year quickly. So then you have Sean Burke, who's a third rounder in 2021. He's at Charlotte. He's struggling. Like you could see him make starts at the end of this year, just like, because like if they're out of it, who really cares? And then I think like a Matthew Thompson um, was a high school pick back in 2019. His last start in Birmingham was pretty good, but he's been up and down. So yeah, I mean, I just think like guys like that. And then, Christian Mena, one of the top prospects in the system. He's only uh, 20 years old at Birmingham. The, the stats aren't great. I don't think we'd see him next, this year, but he could be an option for next year. But, I mean, yeah, like they, they've done a better job replenishing, I think, to the point where like the system isn't terrible on the pitching side, but they don't really have anything coming like immediately. I mean, it's like other guys similar to – Jesse, Jesse Schultons, basically. And look, he's actually been been okay. But, you know, I, I think we'll see a lot more of Tuki Toussaint, basically. The guys that you've heard of that have bounced around is basically what they would have to do to finish the year. And then, you know, you'd have to have like an all-new plan for next year, probably around Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech and whoever else they acquire. So the draft is coming up. Let's get into it. Before we talk about who the Sox may go out and get, and the names that you're hearing, if you had to describe the White Sox draft philosophy to somebody right now, how would you describe the way that they they select players, identify talent, and what they're looking for? Definitely different under fourth-year scouting director Mike Shirley. I mean, he's gone for premium upside, and I, I kind of like his strategy the last couple of years. 2020 was a little weird just because it was a five-round draft. They took Garrett Crochet. And look, he took Garrett Crochet because he thought Garrett Crochet could be a mid-rotation starter. You know, he thought it was the college arm with, like, the best stuff at that point. And then the White Sox, like, took him and turned him into a reliever, and, like, we've kind of seen what's happened. You know, and then they drafted Jared Kelly and gave him a $3 million bonus out of high school. That hasn't totally worked. But the last two years, you know, it's Colson Montgomery, who's a top 30 prospect in all of baseball, and Noah Schultz, who I've just talking to, talked about. Both guys, premium upside. One one other thing I would say about Mike Shirley, like they haven't been afraid to take high school players, which they've they've done. They haven't been super afraid of like pitchers who have been injured in the past. They just they haven't gone safe. They went totally safe for years, I feel like, and some of the years where, where Nick Hostetler was the scouting director and look I've you know, I, I try to not put all of this on him because I do think there was like an organizational direction or mandate to add a bunch of college guys. But then, you know, once college guys start to struggle, 
they're just kind of old already, you know? I mean, even like Jake Berger and Gavin Sheets are like 26 years old or 27 years old, you know what I mean? Whereas like, even though Jared Kelly has struggled, Jared Kelly's still 21. So there's still plenty of time. So I think the best change has been just the fact that like the White Sox are a true wild card where like, you know, taking high school players isn't automatically off the table and they've actually preferred it lately, which I, I always prefer, um, especially on the positional side, like high school up the middle guys, because you can move them anywhere. And high school guys have been quicker to the majors from ever just because of like some of the training regimens and all that high school players are more equipped to play in the big leagues than they ever have been. Interesting. All right. So who are they targeting? You, you, I know over future sacks, you're trying to guess and, and you, you kind of try to, you know, keep your ear to the ground and you kind of look at like this guy might make it to their pick in, in their slot. So, but, but like, you know, as you're sitting there, who do you feel strongly about that the White Sox should either go get or that you think they're eyeballing? Yeah. So we've written like 12 to 15 profiles because they pick 15. So I don't know how much you know about this draft, but it's really good. Like this college class is unbelievable because 2020, a lot of these high school guys, like they're just, there weren't bonuses for them in five rounds. So a lot of them went to school. So there's a lot, you know, this is like very college heavy. The top five of this draft class, um, all five of those players could be number one picks in most years. But then after that, it does thin out a little bit. But so the White Sox have been linked to prep hitters. Um, so there's a shortstop out of Georgia, Colin Houck. There's another shortstop out of Florida, Arjun Namala. And then a third baseman, um, Aiden Miller out of Florida as well. He's like an older high school guy. He's 19 and he broke his handmade bone last year. I mean, he was like in top 10 consideration. So there's three guys there that are on the prep side, but then there's any number of college hitters who, who could be there, you know, when they pick Matt Shaw of Maryland is an infielder. Tommy Troy of Stanford is an infielder. I I'd be surprised if it was a pitcher at 15 and that's more so just because of the class. I think there's, like three college starters that are locks to go before them. And then, you know, there's one high school pitcher, Noble Meyer out of Oregon, but all of the speculation has been that the White Sox would look to take a bat at 15. The thing that makes it difficult is just what I've told you. So Mike Shirley so far in three drafts has gone college pitcher, high school position player, high school pitcher. So he could really do anything. This could be the year that they take another college hitter. Just because, like, in this class, like I just told you, somebody can honestly fall to them. Like, we're going to do shows, and, you know, me and Mike Rankin of Future Sox, we've been projecting this for six weeks and talking to experts and this and that, and all of a sudden, like, you know, if there's some college guy that was supposed to go six or seven sitting there at 15, it's an easy pick to make, right? So, you know, any number of guys could just fall to them and make this easier. But some of those names that I mentioned, I would think – are maybe some of the most likely scenarios. And then there are like a couple of college like corner guys too, like TCU third baseman, Braden Taylor. I don't think he gets to them, but I could see that. And then there's been long standing rumors of Miami third baseman, Yolandi Morales. The White Sox um, actually tried to sign him out of 2020 or in 2020 out of high school in Florida. Um, and they couldn't get that done. He, that would not be my favorite choice. Cause I think there's better players than him that'll be available at 15, but you know, that's a name that people might see, I guess what, over the next two weeks here as all of the guys at major publications are releasing mock drafts, like up until uh, July 9th is uh, night one of the draft this year. 
Yeah, well, I can see how some people might put that last name with the White Sox because the White Sox have a history of always getting the guy they want. They'll, they'll wait 30 years and get him on, in his last year in Major League Baseball if it's the guy they always wanted in their organization. James, before I let you go, what what is the secret in your mind to getting the White Sox minor league system and prospect pipeline better? Because it just feels like it's been a few years now of being one of the worst. Yeah, I mean, I so like I do think there's like a disconnect somewhere, right? Because I think they do things that, that I like, and then they talk, and it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? But then there's like a – so there's like a difference between drafting high upside players, right, and then developing those players in your system. And it's just always kind of seems like there is no White Sox way, right? Like the Dodgers draft guys in all 20 rounds, and they find a way to have the number one farm system in baseball without having the most money to spend, and they just – develop and look it probably comes down to money chris i just think that you know the white Sox just don't invest money in infrastructure like a lot of other teams do and look people laugh about analytics and all that stuff right but i mean like the rays have 150 analysts on staff like for a reason right because they're not spending 200 million dollars on players but what can they do like they can spend a ton of money on their front office and scouts and you know, like other things for teams to use. And I just feel like it's just something the White Sox have always been behind on. And Jerry Reinsdorf organizations have cut corners. It's happening with a basketball team too. So I, I just like kind of think that's the gist of it. I don't, I don't know if it's as simple as saying like, oh, fire Chris Getz and hire a new scout and hire a new uh, player development director. Because I honestly just like don't really think it matters that much unless it's taken seriously and resources are – implemented like in the appropriate ways the same way as like your smart teams are doing it james fox he's with future Sox. he's a smart guy that's why we have him on so much and he is going to be covering the draft like uh like a warm blanket i would imagine all the way up to and through and uh, i'm sure we'll check in with him afterwards and find out what we actually got out of this draft james thanks so much for jumping on yeah chris thanks for having me no problem Hailstorm Brewing Company is the official brewery of Socks in the Basement, located in Tinley Park, 8060 186th Street, right off of 80th Avenue, with an incredible scratch kitchen inside of that big, beautiful beer hall and tap room. It's a working brewery, and it is so much fun all year round, but in the summertime when that patio is open, the live music on the weekends, it is the place to be. That kitchen is open now at 11 a.m. for lunch Tuesday through Sunday and then into the night. You can even order online in advance if you're coming in to pick it up to take it someplace else. The flatbreads are good. The wings are good. The pork belly sliders are incredible. And then I can pick any kind of style, basically, off of that big, beautiful menu. If you like a hazy IPA, I suggest the Cumulus. See everything they have to offer at HailstormBrewing.com and get out to Tinley Park and Hailstorm Brewing, 8060 186th Street. I know that everybody's ultimate dream is that Jerry Reinsdorf sells the team, right? And then the second ultimate dream is there's an absolute bloodletting and they clean house in the front office in the offseason. But I'm a realistic White Sox fan. I know that there are things that should be done that aren't going to get done. That, that That's just how this organization works. Realistically, what do you think could happen this offseason? Because I feel like, personally, Rick Hahn goes. 
I think that there's a really good chance that he either goes or he's moved into some other position because that's what they like to do there. You know, it's like Rick's going to be doing something else now. But there, I think that there's movement there at his position. And if that happens, you could really see Pedro out the door because that was his pick. What, what do you think is realistic? I really, uh, I, I'm really not even sure Rick goes. I, I don't know that, that they have that as a priority. I think if there's going to be a scapegoat, it's going to be Pedro. How do you scapegoat the first year manager and nobody moves in the front office? I don't think that that'll fly. I, well, since when have they cared what flies? Okay. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about a team that puts wings on a brick and tells you it's an airplane. So it's not really a matter of what they think flies or doesn't fly. But there's assuming that you're right, though, that there is going to be for the sake of appearances, some sort of a, a, a shakeup. I'm not even convinced that it'll be somebody from the outside that comes in and takes over the GM role. I think they will try and do what they did with Rick Hahn when Kenny Williams was the GM and they shifted Williams up and they promoted Rick Hahn and they will sit there and say, you know, look, we have this guy, Chris Getz, oh. who is, I, you know what? You, you tell me I'm, I'm, I'm off base here, but they'll, they'll move stuff around. And then Kenny's kid will get a promotion out of it. That's what will happen. Oh, I'm I guaranteed, but they'll put a different face in front of us. They will put a different face than Rick Hahn in front of us. It might even be Daryl Boston. Who knows? It oh might be Larry goodness. Garcia. He'll bring back the whistle for press conferences. <laughs> honestly, honestly <laughs> for that, I would, I would accept the whistle. That would be kind of fun. I think that the, one of the things that's going to indicate to me what's going to happen in that front office is if they do make deals at the deadline, because I, and I'll be able to tell who's really making the deal. There's a difference between a Kenny Williams deal and a Rick Hahn deal. Ken Williams 100%. operates very differently than Rick Hahn, the type of player he likes to bring in, the way he values or doesn't value prospects. It's very different. If I see them operating closer to when Kenny was pulling the strings and making the decisions, then I will feel as though Hahn's on his way out the door. Sure, he's sitting in the room, but there's a reason why he's being overruled or being pushed in this direction because he isn't going to be taking over in the offseason because this is the kind of organization that doesn't make a move in the middle of the season. It will wait till the end, but the idea may already be in their head. Like, look, this just isn't working. It's t- we got to do something differently. So I'll be watching that. I'll be watching to see if there's Kenny Williams type moves. Well, Kenny's the one who came out and said they're going to be buyers, right? So if you see moves that are suggestive of a buy, that is probably a Kenny Williams move. If you see Giolito traded and it's for minor league guys and guys that are a couple years away, I think Rick Hahn's job is secure. If you see Lucas Giolito traded and they get to call it a complete retooling or they get to say we filled a couple of holes with major league talent and we can move forward you know, with this group and see where we go in the division this year and we hate to give up Lucas, but blah, 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 then I think, you know, then I think yeah, you're right. I think you can, you can feel Kenny Williams' fingerprints all over it. And I don't think Kenny goes back to the GM chair. I really honestly do think that they rotate somebody around and they rotate somebody else into the firing line. So the question becomes then, who, who is the guy that fans get to be mad at for the next four to five years? <laughs> that means- 
music indicates it's time for our weekly check-in with the Sox nerd. He and James Fox and everybody that appears on this show, besides me and Ed, are brought to you proudly by the Village of Lamont. Want to experience a downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces filled with adventure? Visit the Village of Lamont, shop, dine, drink, explore, and see everything going on this weekend and beyond at LamontDowntown.com. There was a massive blowout in Major League Baseball recently. So I'm guessing the Sox nerd is going to talk blowouts with us. Yes, blowouts. You know, Chris, in the last couple of days, we've seen some colossal wallopings. On Saturday night, the Angels blasted the Colorado Rockies 25-1. to Less than 24 hours later, Florida, even the College World Series Championship Series, by devastating LSU 24-4. That got me to thinking, what do some of the more lopsided games in White Sox history look like? Since my late mother called me her sunshine boy, I will not be focusing on one-sided Sox losses. Though if I did, I would definitely have to mention the embarrassing 16 to nothing loss the Sox suffered in the first game at the New Park in 1991, the 20-1 to drubbing the Twins laid on the Sox on May 21, 2009, and the 15-4 to loss Seattle handed the Sox on May 2, 2002, thanks to a 10-run first inning where Brett Boone and Mike Cameron each hit two homers. The slaughterhouse victories are much more fun to look at than the slaughterhouse losses. They are also much more fun to watch and to work as well. Anyway, the Sox' biggest victory by run differential came on April 23, 1955. In their second game in Kansas City, the Sox won by 23 runs. With Bob Neiman, Sherm Lawler, and Minnie Minoso combining for 17 RBIs, the Sox beat the A's 29-6. The 29 runs are still a club record, as are the 29 hits, 7 homers, and 55 total bases in that game. An interesting side note to this one is that it came two days after the White Sox became the first American League team to fly from one city to another. The Sox started this road trip in Detroit and then flew to Kansas City to play the A's, who were in their first year in Missouri after spending the previous 54 years in Philadelphia. The Sox' largest margin of victory in their current home occurred on July 3, 2012, when they ripped Texas by 17 with a 19-2 win. Kevin Euclid was the Sox hitting star that day with three hits, including a homer and three RBIs. The Rangers' shortstop that day was Elvis Andrews, who drove in both of Texas's runs. Speaking of Elvis, his current team is certainly not a big fan of the big blowout. The 2023 Sox have only had two laughers so far, a 17-4 win at Cincinnati on May 7th and a 12-3 win in Detroit 19 days later. My zinger? I don't really know what to make of this whole Tim Anderson experiment at second base, but I do know this. He enters the road trip with two games at the position. With one more game at second base, T.A. will equal the Sox total of Dick Allen. Yes, the great Dick Allen played three games at second base for the Sox in 1973 and 1974. Tim is in some pretty interesting company in the Sox two-game second base club. Jeff Blum, Tony Phillips, Jake Berger, and Andrew Vaughn are among the Sox who have played exactly two games at second. That's it, Chris. That's probably more than you ever wanted to know about blowouts, close games, and the Sox perpetual revolving door at second base. Thank you very much, my friend, for bringing this show home. Remember, you can voice your displeasure with the state of the White Sox front office. There are plenty of angry t-shirts available on our website for 20 bucks. If you haven't seen them, they're definitely worth a laugh. The laugh is free. The podcast is found anywhere podcasts can be found. The t-shirts in the podcast are at SocksInTheBasement.com. Socks in the Basement. 
Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found. And always on SocksInTheBasement.com.